and SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. This week, we're continuing our series of interviews on oral advocacy at the Supreme Court. Our guest this week is William J. of Goodwin. Before joining Goodwin, he spent five years in the office of the U.S. Solicitor General, and he's argued 17 cases before the Supreme Court. Welcome. Thanks for having me. You have a robust practice in the lower courts, including the federal courts of appeals. When you get ready to argue at the Supreme Court, how is that different from arguing in the courts of appeals? It's different in a number of ways, the most significant of which is that you always know exactly which nine uh, judges or justices you're going to be uh, appearing before. So appearing before an en banc uh, court of appeals, it's the same uh, experience, whereas there are several circuits, including some where I appear pretty regularly, where you don't find out your panel until the morning of, and you certainly don't uh, know your panel's membership when you write your briefs. Now, I try not to tailor the presentation to individual judges anyway, but it is often helpful to know, for example, if one of the judges on your panel wrote or dissented from the key precedent that both sides are going to be talking about in the oral argument. And uh, you just don't want to be caught flat-footed with a fact like that. So walk us through in the the weeks and days leading up to an oral argument. The norm in the SG's office is to do two moot courts uh, and in private practice uh, for a Supreme Court argument, I'll certainly do two. Uh, I have done as many as four. The best way to formulate a good answer is to talk about the issue at some length with someone who's prepared and an experienced questioner, because often the material for the best answer winds up being the seventh or eighth sentence that I babble out during the moot court. And someone says, there, that, that was that was the good part. Save that. Uh, so I find moot courts invaluable. Uh, I'm always thinking about what are my thematic points? Where do I want to start? And what are the two, three, five things that I want to have said before I sat down? Whether I get a lot of questions or no questions or questions about things that are interesting to the court, but not helpful to my client's position. I always have a handful of things that I want to get out, uh, often that are either not in the briefs uh, in these words uh, or, or just put differently in the briefs. Most commonly when I'm the respondent, uh, there'll be things that I want to say in response to the reply brief uh, that I have stashed away that I definitely want to get out. All right. Tell us about your first oral argument at the Supreme Court. Uh, I was uh, an assistant in the SG's office uh, and uh, was given a petitioner side tax case to argue uh, against a truly formidable adversary. I now judge Patricia Millett uh, of the D.C. Circuit, who was then in private practice. Uh, New assistants are often given cases that are perceived to be either 9-0 winners or 9-0 losers. they, they don't have enough 9-0 winners to give everybody a winner. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know uh, whether this was perceived as a 9-0 winner or not, but it definitely seemed uh, that the government had a, a very strong position. Uh, so uh, I spent a lot of time preparing. One nice thing about the government is that you have tremendous access to the expertise of agencies and government litigators who are thoroughly familiar with every uh, corner and uh, uh, dark, uh, unexplored aspect of every issue in the briefs. Uh, And so 
I spent a lot of time with the DOJ tax division, with the DOJ civil division, which litigates similar issues, uh, getting ready for argument. I ended up having a, uh, an extremely uh, oversubscribed moot court for bizarre reasons. The SG decided to come, two deputies decided to come, a bunch of lawyers from a bunch of DOJ divisions. It was all kind of overwhelming. Uh, but having gotten through the moot courts, uh, I was then given a couple of things that, uh, you know, you really need to think about your answer to X. And I remember uh, waking up in the middle of the night, uh, having thought of an answer to a question that I was likely to get, scrabbling for the steno pad that I had been <laughs> carrying around with me everywhere I went, writing it down on the, uh, uh, on the steno pad. And sure enough, it was a question that I got from the chief justice and I gave the answer that I thought of in the middle of the night and it seemed to satisfy him. So uh, uh, it was good that the case remained top of mind all the time. Uh, and then the day before argument, I was walking around the uh, town where I live, uh, practicing my argument, uh, which uh, to any outside observer would look like I was a deranged, crazy person walking down the sidewalks, mumbling to himself and a uh, friend and fellow appellate lawyer stopped his car on the corner of the street, <laughs> rolled down his window and said, are you okay? Uh, so having practiced my opening, I uh, got to court. I was the first uh, first lawyer to speak in the case that I was going to be doing. Uh, uh, well, let me, let me back up. We were the second case of the day. Uh, and I, in the, in the middle of the first case, I had been thinking, you know, um, I've seen uh, other lawyers, you know, get up to stretch their legs in the middle of the first case if they're arguing the second case. I mean, am, I, am I supposed to do that? Should I do that? Fortunately, I did not because the government lawyer in the first case sat down 23 minutes early. <laughs> I might well have been out I of the courtroom. I was there. So uh, when you are the first lawyer to speak in the second case, you get up from the backup table, you walk up to the lectern with all your stuff, you put your stuff at the counsel table, and you basically stand there at the lectern. While everybody around you, the first case flows out, the lawyers from the second case fill in, some of the justices get up and stretch, there's you know, a modest amount of noise in the courtroom, and you're just sort of standing there, standing there, standing there, waiting for the chief justice to decide that everything is ready and he's going to call the case. So naturally, by the time that happened, uh, I had forgotten my opening. <laughs> uh, so I did what I now try not to do, but uh, uh, am prepared to do if I have to. I looked down at the printed version I had in the front of my notebook and reminded myself how to begin after Mr. Chief Justice and may it please the court. Mr. Chief Justice and may it please the court, respondents sought and received a full refund of the tax they paid on exported coal for the full three-year period permitted them. Uh, and then I started off too fast and Justice Ginsburg politely interrupted to say, perhaps I might raise the lectern uh, to position the mic better. It might help if you raise that lectern a bit. Is that better, Your Honor? Yeah. That uh, helped uh, break the speed <laughs> and get me back to a calmer position. So then from there, it all seemed to go pretty well. Justice Scalia, for whom I had clerked, asked the first substantive question, accusing the government of attempting to uh, run with the fox and chase with the hound. Mr. Jay, is the government um, uh, running with the fox and uh, chasing with the hounds? Uh, you you want us to apply the uh, uh, the provisions governing the Internal Revenue Code uh, with regard to whether the statute has expired, but when it comes to interest, 
you say, oh, no, 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 that doesn't apply. Why? Why, Why shouldn't the two go pari passu, as we say? What was it like arguing before him after you clerked for him? Uh, one great thing about Justice Scalia as a questioner was that he was generally pretty open about what he was thinking. He asked questions because they were on his mind. Sometimes the questions ended with an exclamation point rather than a question mark <laughs> because he was basically saying, I don't agree with you. The real way to look at this is X. But uh, when he asked questions, he wanted to hear a response and he could be persuaded of the contrary. And I always uh, thought it was a great experience to have given an answer that he found uh, persuasive and that uh, caused him to sit back and stop badgering me. <laughs> but more than once, uh, I think not because I was his former clerk. Uh, honestly, I don't think he was thinking about that at all. This is just like how he approached cases. Uh, more than once, he said, well, I don't agree with the answer that you gave. I don't think you should concede that, you know, that the real answer is X. And more than once, I thought, yeah, you're right. <laughs> that is a better answer. What kind of questions are the hardest ones to answer? line drawing questions, you know, uh, what, what if it was two years? What if it was three years? What if it was four years? What if it was five years? Uh, knowing where to draw the line and uh, how much trouble it's going to get you in with the court uh, can, be, can be hard. Uh, sometimes you're being asked line drawing questions that are like, how should I write an opinion that goes in your favor? And some of them are more along the lines of, well, that can't be right because the logical consequence is that this would also be true and then this and then this and then this. And so we're down the slippery slope if I vote for you at all. So in the latter set of cases, I usually try and have some kind of limiting principle, even if I don't know exactly where the line is. Uh, And my answer might begin, let me explain why this case is different from the hypothetical that you just gave. Uh, A lot of people will say, well, that would be a harder case. And that Sometimes that works to get out of a line of questioning, and sometimes it doesn't because it sometimes invites the answer. Yes, I know it would be a harder case. That's why I asked the question. <laughs> what yes. is your position on how that case would be resolved? Fair enough. So you're, you're in the middle of your oral argument. What do you do when you have some justice quickly becomes obvious you're not going to get his or her vote, but he's, he or she's still peppering you with questions? Um, you can't just kind of dismiss the questions and, and move on. How do you sort of try to satisfy that justice and, and keep going? Uh, if it's a question I've prepared for, I've prob- and it's a, a weakness in our case or a, a hostile question that I anticipated, I probably have thought at least somewhat about what the exit strategy from a particular line of questioning might be, uh, you know, how to bridge the gap from awkward question to affirmative point that's that helps to advance our client's case. And I'll try and do that. You know, if I get interrupted with a follow-up and then another follow-up and so on. Um, One thing that I've seen uh, people do is to say, I think that my response to that ties into my earlier answer to, you know, Justice Sotomayor. uh, And uh, whether it does or not, it allows you to try and (laughs) weave together something that you wanted to be talking about that you were talking about earlier. Uh, and it might conceivably remind, you know, in my example, Justice Sotomayor, uh, that she too had some follow-up about something that I'd said earlier. Uh, if, for example, I said, you know, I have three, I have three points, and I'd only given two of them. Sometimes you can 
get someone to say, oh, yes, what was your third point in response to that? So you can't extricate yourself uh, from a determined line of questioning from a determined questioner, but perhaps another member of the court can. Clever. I'm going to play your rebuttal in Teva Pharmaceuticals versus Sandoz. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. I'd like to make, I think, five points. What are you generally trying to accomplish when you're the petitioner and you've got your rebuttal time? Uh, Especially if your adversary has just had 30 minutes, there's probably an awful lot of material uh, that you could respond to. Uh, But really a couple of things. One, reminding the court of the good things that you said in the top side or in your briefs uh, that just didn't come up in the bottom side of argument, but that are nonetheless very important. Let's talk about figure one in particular, because we didn't touch on that as much in the top half of the argument. Uh, two, pointing out what your adversary did not successfully answer. Why does the government disagree with you about that? The government agrees with us 100% about figure one. And I think the government says, we can, and we agree with this as well, the error on figure one is itself a sufficient basis to remand. Uh, and three, uh, pointing out anything that the other side said that's just wrong. In response to uh, Mr. Phillips' suggestion that there aren't going to be many cases with contested facts, this is a case with contested facts. I have read that in choosing between a glancing blow on a very important issue and a real knockout blow on something that's a tertiary issue, a lot of people will advise to go for the knockout blow because uh, you, you then sit down having delivered an effective rebuttal. Uh, I think that only works if the issue is at least somewhat important to the resolution of the case. So in other words, uh, you may be able to call out your adversary and say, actually, it was page 67, (laughs) not page 66. uh, But that has advanced you precisely nowhere. Uh, So I I try to keep my eyes on what the case is about. What what do we actually need to persuade the court of to win the case uh, and try to land as hard a blow as I can on something that matters. What advice would you give to somebody who was arguing for the first time at the Supreme Court? I think it would depend on whether it was somebody who has seen a lot of Supreme Court arguments, has been in and around the Supreme Court a lot, maybe has even been in court already, but has just, just hasn't done a Supreme Court argument before, and someone who's just coming to the Supreme Court for the first time. Uh, because uh, the someone in the former category honestly, is probably going to do an excellent job uh, with their first argument because they have seen what the argument is like, what works and what doesn't work, and they probably are going to be extremely well prepared, uh, sometimes better than some uh, veteran advocates. Uh, so uh, what I think what I would tell somebody who's going to argue in the Supreme Court uh, for the first time and hasn't seen a lot of arguments there uh, is that the justices use oral argument to flesh out your position and to communicate with each other about what the weaknesses in your position and your adversary's position uh, are. And it really doesn't work to try too hard to direct the flow of the argument, at least not in such a way as the justices can see it. So occasionally an advocate will say to the court, I'll get to that or that's not a relevant question, or that's not this case, case. (laughs) don't do that. How to answer hypotheticals with something better, more satisfying to the court, and more productive for your case than that's not this case uh, is really the most important advice that a lot of novice advocates 
get and benefit from during the preparation process that, for example, the Georgetown Supreme Court Institute offers. Willie J., thanks very much. Thank you very much for having me. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to Case Text, our sponsor, and thanks to our production team, Katie Bart, Hal Goldie, and Edith Roberts.